Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're having a chat about the democratic peace theory, one of the most divisive issues in modern political science and in the study of international relations. Now, this episode is going to be a bit different to most. Obviously, the back catalogue is filled with episodes about people and events. Um, there are a few episodes offering a broader history of a thing or even a type of thing. We haven't done a lot of episodes on concept however. And uh, while we'll obviously still explore the history of the democratic peace theory, this episode will be, uh, I guess it'll be a little bit more half-assed political science uh, than, you know, the usual half-assed history. So I hope people enjoy this. I do want to get feedback from you as to whether this is a welcome diversion or an unwelcome diversion. Um, I don't think I'm going to just lurch off into discussing political theory every week, but I just felt like talking about this sort of thing this week. I've, I've, I've been reading about it and I thought maybe it'll be interesting. And it does involve, uh, of course, obviously a fair bit of history as, uh, as we'll get into. Anyway, at the most basic level, let me tell you what the democratic peace theory is. The democratic peace theory states that democracies don't, generally speaking, go to war with one another. And uh, so therefore, the more democracies there are, the more peaceful the world becomes. Now, there definitely is a connection between democracy and peace. However, historians and political scientists still argue about why there is this connection. The democratic peace theory argues that democracies cause peace, but plenty of people disagree. Some analysts believe the complete opposite, that not that, not that uh, democracy causes peace, but instead peace causes democracy. And then there are yet others that dismiss theories like this altogether. They argue that peace is caused by completely different factors, as, of course, we will get across today. The democratic peace theory goes back a long way, longer than you'd think, um, and its history really is very interesting. We'll be talking about it. But what's even more interesting is examining its place in modern politics in the 21st century and getting stuck into whether or not it is actually valid. And look, I'll be honest with you, I don't know if it is or if it isn't. I know I'm being a cowardly fence-sitter by saying this, but there are honestly very good arguments made on both sides of this issue. So I'll present them to you and let you make up your own mind, or if you choose to, you can do further research into the democratic peace theory. And if you do so, there are two things that I would like to say to you. First of all, welcome. By all means, welcome to the wonderful world of studying international relations and second of all, good luck, because you don't know what you've just done to yourself. You will never look at the world the same way again. I very much look forward to finding out if you consider yourself a structural realist or a social constructivist or, a, or even a neoliberal institutionalist. These are but a handful of the excitingly crunchy labels you can apply to international relations go-hards. Anyway... We're kicking off 2024 with a little bit of political science and international relations to go along with the history as a little treat. So do let me know what you uh, would you think of this episode. I know it's a bit different. Uh, I know it perhaps won't be to everyone's liking, but hey, maybe you'll learn a thing or two. And even if not, there is some very fancy terminology coming your way this week that will make... Look, it'll make you sound like the smartest person in the room. Don't you worry about that. At the very least, you can be the life of your next party as you talk about 
monadic peace and audience costs and warfare bargaining models. Anyway, a lot to get across today, uh, as you can imagine. So let's get to it here. Let's tackle the democratic peace theory, hear uh, what it's got to say for itself, talk about some of its criticisms and see where we land on it all. But before we go all the way back here, before we go all the way back, let's kick off the episode like a bad best man speech with some definitions. Um, Specifically here, we need to define three things. Uh, Firstly, what democracy is. Secondly, what peace is. And thirdly, and probably most importantly, what the democratic peace theory is. And the contention over the democratic peace theory, it begins with these definitions. After all, if democracies don't go to war with one another, then any state that does go to war with a democracy is necessarily not a democracy, right? As you can see, if you are willing to uh, adjust your definitions appropriately, then you can prove anything, including the validity of the democratic peace theory, without even getting out of your chair. Easy peasy. No, no, we are going to be a bit more rigorous than that today. So let's begin by attempting to define a democracy. Now, obviously, debate rages over what a democracy actually is and which nations qualify as democracies and further than that, to what degree they qualify. We're going to boil it down to foundational aspects that are very difficult to argue against here. Uh, Democracies are nations that hold elections that enable the peaceful transition of power between different and often oppositional political groups. Democracies must allow the majority of their adult populations to vote. They must have a representative body, a parliament for instance, that holds significant political power. And the political structure of a democracy must include limits and checks and balances on those who are in power. Now, there are obviously many other factors that are usually very strongly connected with democracies, particularly Western liberal democracies, things like deeply entrenched political pluralism, the protection of individual rights and and liberties, uh, transparency and accountability, things like a civilian-controlled military. There are lots of things, the list goes on, but the water starts to become a little muddier beyond uh, the, the fundamental factors that we started with. The free and fair elections, the peaceful transfer of power, and limits on this power. But democracies aren't binary, right? It's not as simple as being able to say, well, this is a democracy and this is not a democracy, because a nation can be extremely democratic. It can be somewhat democratic, or it might even be only slightly democratic. It's, it's, not, it's not as black and white as, uh, as, as our very basic definition might, might suggest to you. In fact, a newspaper called The Economist, it regularly releases rankings of the world's nations in terms of just how democratic they are. And it may surprise American listeners, and probably no one else, to discover that the US is currently ranked 30th on this list, rated as a flawed democracy, only just above Botswana. Now, right at the top of this list is, of course, Norway. Five of the top six slots are Nordic countries. Of course, these bloody scandos and their liberal paradises must be very nice. But, however, my friends, in the second slot, it is not a Nordic country. It's not even a European country. No, no, no. Right down here in Oceania, you bloody love to see it. The second most democratic nation on Earth is New Zealand? Excuse? What? Okay, this is nonsense. Absolute bloody nonsense. These economists, coneheads, they don't have a bloody clue. What are they doing putting Aotearoa above, above Australia? Where where are we? Where are we in this? Bloody 15th, mate. We have been robbed. We've been robbed. Apparently, Australia isn't as good as, uh, not as good at democracy as we as we should be. Bloody shame. Imagine being beaten by the Kiwis at anything other than rugby union. Oh, my goodness. Ugh. Anyway, as... um. 
as complex as the uh, the definition of a democracy can be, you you can at least attempt to boil it down to its its fundamentals, fundamentals uh, upon which Australia apparently still evidently needs to work. But um, we can move on now from the definition of democracy and uh, and move on to defining peace. It is a little easier and little less complex to define peace as simply being the absence of war. Now, defining war is a little trickier, obviously, because what counts as a war? What doesn't? Um, Often these definitions are based around numbers. A war is an armed military conflict between two nations where at least X people die in battle, anywhere between, I don't know, 200 to 1,000, depending on who you ask. Again, the numbers vary, but, uh, but still... It's, a, it's generally pretty obvious when a nation is at war, and for the purposes of the democratic peace theory, we don't really have to go too deep. Um, peace is a state of relations between two or more nations marked by a lack of ongoing armed military conflict. There may be diplomatic conflict. Uh, the nations in question may hate each other's guts, but uh, if they're not mobilising against each other, if they're not at war, they are therefore at peace. And now the final thing to define is the uh, the topic itself that we're discussing, the democratic peace theory, uh, which at its most basic is a theory arguing that democracies don't, for whatever reason, wage war on one another. Now, this is a very simple concept, but it's one with uh, very complex and uh, seemingly valid arguments on both sides. Um, and... Uh, Whatever the case, whether it's valid or not, the democratic peace theory argues that democratic nations are more peaceful, they are less likely to go to war, especially with one another, and they are more likely to seek peaceful diplomatic solutions to disputes. Now, we'll come to why this is the case, or is not the case in due course, but now, with a proper understanding of democracy, peace, and the democratic peace theory to support our discussions through the rest of the episode, we can talk about the history of this theory. And for this, we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1795 to an essay published by the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. Now, we could go back a lot further than this. We could go back thousands and thousands of years to, uh, to the world's first democracies, all the way back in the ancient world. But if we were to do that, we can essentially kiss the democratic peace theory goodbye because democratic Greek city-states went to war with each other all the time. And even the Roman Republic went to war with the somewhat democratic Carthaginians. So no, the democratic peace theory is a thoroughly modern theory. It only really applies to the re-emergence of democracies from the late 18th century onwards, thanks to things like the French and the American revolutions. Although there are plenty of political theorists who attempt to sculpt and shape and twist it to apply to uh, periods of history like ancient Greece. But we'll be focusing on the more modern era, going back, as I say, to the end of the 18th century to 1795, when, uh, when this philosopher Kant he published an essay entitled Perpetual Peace, A Philosophical Sketch. And it was in this essay that Kant put first put forth the, the first version of the democratic peace theory, uh, although it was only put forward in conceptual terms and, and certainly not the terms that we think about it today. There's a reason for this. There just weren't all that many democracies back then when Kant was writing, as I'm sure you know. And so his work uh, when it comes to uh, democracy and the, and the democratic peace theory was much more hypothetical than it was analytical. Kant argued that a republic nation, where political power was ultimately vested in people, not in monarchs or oligarchs, would never seek to go to war for any reason other than self-defence. Now, the reasoning that he puts forward uh, to support this proposition is very solid indeed, especially when we think about the time period in which Kant was writing, right? A time where 
most governmental systems around the world were monarchical or oligarchical. They they concentrated a large amount of power um, in in the hands of, of, of very few people. And if that's the case, right, a monarch or an oligarch or an otherwise autocratic author- authoritarian uh, leader could unilaterally make the decision to go to war, send subjects off to fight and die without really paying much of a personal cost. Because again, in Kant's time, the monarchs aren't really usually the ones going off and fighting the wars themselves. However, if common people are the ones deciding whether or not to go go to war, why would they ever voluntarily choose to when they are the ones who have to go off and do the fighting? They're the ones who would die. They're the ones who would have their homes and their property ravaged and destroyed by the enemy. They're the ones who would have to clean up and repair the mess once the war was over. So Kant put forth the idea that it is never in the best interests of common people to fight a war of aggression and that if, if common people hold political power, they would never decide to do so. So we can follow this theory through to its natural conclusion, which is that if every nation on earth was a democratic republic, war would end forever, as no one would ever choose to declare or fight a war. Now, this may sound a little a little airy-fairy, it might sound a little bit like pie in the sky, um, but the idea that republics uh, are inherently more peaceful was actually noted even before Kant's time. So he's not just basing this on wild theory crafting. There is evidence to suggest even in Kant's time that that uh, republics and, and democracies were more peaceful than their monarchic and oligarchic and, uh, and autocratic counterparts. Um, this was noticed as far back as 1776, when American philosopher and founding father Thomas Paine, in his pamphlet Common Sense, noted how European republics, like the Dutch Republic, were generally more peaceful than their monarchical neighbours. Now, Payne didn't go so far as to say that republics don't fight each other. Um, there weren't really enough republics to go around back then. But this uh, this observation does support the the writings of Kant that came along 20 years later um, as, he, as he put forth this prototype, I guess, this, uh, this alpha version of, uh, of the democratic peace theory in 1795 with perpetual peace. And his ideas were picked up and developed. And uh, in, uh, in a few decades later, they were echoed by the French historian Alexis de Tocqueville, who published two volumes uh, of his book, Democracy in America, in 1835 and 1840, respectively. And Tocqueville's focus in this work is admittedly more on the domestic implications of democracy. But he nonetheless made some very important observations about the impact of democracy on foreign affairs, specifically that democratic nations seem to be less likely to wage wars of aggression, for reasons that we'll get into shortly, and are only really ever likely to go to war for the purposes of self-defense. Now, while not explicitly saying something like democracies don't go to war with one another, Tocqueville nonetheless pointed out how a democracy like the United States in the mid-19th century was much more peaceful than autocratic nations throughout other parts of the world. However, perhaps that had less to do with American democracy and more to do with American foreign policy at the time. In 1832, the US issued the Monroe Doctrine, a policy position that made it clear that the United States would not tolerate colonial interference in democratic nations across the Americas, from the North to the South. 
Now, again, this didn't quite state that democracies don't fight each other, but already we're heading in a direction that sees democracy at least willing to defend one another, willing to stand in solidarity with, with, with one another, which is certainly in alignment with the democratic peace theory. So you can see, all the way back into the 19th century, this democratic peace theory was on the boil. It was slowly but surely developing. But as we jump now forward into the 20th century, we can talk about how the democratic peace theory rose to proper prominence and took its place as one of the most controversial issues in modern international relations. While Kant and Paine and Tocqueville were immensely important political thinkers in their own time, it wasn't really until the back half of the 20th century that the democratic peace theory began to pick up steam. A criminologist by the name of Dean Babst was the first to publish quantified research on the idea that democracies don't go to war with one another. And this ultimately gave rise to not just the theory as it is today, but also the enormous debate over the theory's validity. And by the time we get to the 1980s, in the later stages of the Cold War, the democratic peace theory had become extremely well-known and extremely contentious in the world of international relations. Some swore by it, others considered it nonsense, and disputes over the validity of the democratic peace theory rage on to this very day. It is, as I mentioned, one of the most controversial theories in modern international relations. It's right up there with concepts like... uh, rational choice theory or structure versus agency in terms of just how much people bloody love to argue about it. So again, welcome to the world of international relations. It is somehow at the same time both absolutely fascinating and skull-crushingly boring. Anyway, With an understanding now of both the definitions of the terms involved while discussing this theory and its history and development and how it got to be where it is today, we can at last talk about, uh, in both a historical and modern context, the democratic peace theory uh, by exploring the arguments, both supportive and critical, of the theory itself. And we begin by laying out the arguments in support of the democratic peace theory uh, with the simplest and most straightforward argument of them all, since the re-emergence of democracy in the late 18th century, there have not been wars between democratic nations. Wars have been fought between democracies and autocracies, and between autocracies and other autocracies, but wars have not been fought between democracies and other democracies. This is without a doubt the most important practical piece of evidence when it comes to arguing in favour of the democratic peace theory. However, you will not be surprised to learn that even if they agree that the democratic peace theory is true, its proponents still argue over why it's true. There are believers in monadic peace, as opposed to those who believe in dyadic peace, and never the twain shall meet. Those who believe in monadic peace argue that democratic nations are inherently more peaceful and less warlike in their own right. Um, Now, this school of thought doesn't have quite as much support as dyadic peace uh, for the simple fact that democracies still very much go to war, just not with one another, so they're not necessarily more peaceful. Mainstream support of the democratic peace theory comes from people who believe in dyadic peace, which refers to the concept that democracies are more peaceful with each other for a range of reasons that we're about to come to next. In other words, it takes two democracies to not tango. Democracies by themselves aren't inherently more peaceful, but democracies, but the relationships between democracies are. 
But look, whatever the reason, um, those in support of the democratic peace theory will point out that while you can get lost in the weeds about the conceptual proofs and the hypothetical reasonings behind theories like this, history speaks for itself. Democracies just don't go to war with one another, and that is enough to indicate that the democratic peace theory is in fact valid. But it doesn't explain why. Because even if we assume that the theory is valid, why don't democratic nations go to war with one another? There are a great many different reasons that have been put forth to explain this. Um, and to talk about them properly, we're going to begin by going back to Kant and his perpetual peace. Kant made what is called a structural case for what would become the democratic peace theory, one that has been expanded to support the theory as it stands today in the modern world. And this argument revolves around the idea that the structures of democracy necessarily give political influence to those who will suffer the most due to war, the common people who will fight and die, or whose loved ones will, and even if they don't fight or lose people, the common folk are still the ones paying the taxes that fund the war. So theoretically speaking, the structure of a democracy by empowering common people it stands in the way of democracies waging wars of aggression, as the people who ultimately hold power, the electors, are also the people who have to fight these wars, who have the most to lose from them, and therefore will be the most averse to fighting them. Additionally, there are plenty of other democratic political structures that aren't conducive to waging a war of aggression. Uh, for instance, while an autocrat can unilaterally mobilise an army and, and launch a surprise war on another nation very swiftly, Democracies can't, for so many different reasons. There are too many checks and balances on power, there is too much accountability on leaders, there is too much bloody red tape in the way. And on top of this, democracies are so, so much worse than autocracies when it comes to disguising their foreign policy objectives and any warlike intentions they may have. The accountability placed on democratic leaders and the transparency that a, that a free press fights for combines with things like the expectations that citizens of democracies have for their leaders to act predictably and to keep their promises to result in an atmosphere that makes it very, very difficult for a democratic leader to go to war effectively. Not just because people won't like them going to war, but also because it actually hinders the strategic and tactical enactment of a war itself. Any war they wage will be expected. It will be anticipated, talked about, broadcast, and, and, and signaled ahead of time, meaning that the war necessarily will not be fought as effectively because enemies will see it coming. On top of this, democratic leaders are answerable to voters at the ballot box, unlike autocrats. Um, so if you wage an unpopular war, you will suffer for it come election time. Uh, again, unlike an autocrat who doesn't have to worry about such things. So democratic leaders, due to the structure of democracies, have a lot more to lose by waging an unpopular or an unsuc uh, unsuccessful war, and so therefore are less likely to seek to do so. So these are some of the structural factors that disincentivize democracies from going to war. But you might have noticed, none of these structural arguments actually specifically apply to going to war with other democracies. And the democratic peace theory doesn't say anything about democracies going to war with non-democracies, which they certainly do. So we need to look further than the structural complaints on warmongering democracies to explain why they don't fight other democracies. And to do this, we will examine democratic culture and the role that it plays in preventing war between democracies. 
democracies tend to have a lot in common with each other when it comes to their political culture. I'm not talking about traditional culture, things like art and music and architecture and food and, and, and costume and, and, and these sorts of things. They're, they're obviously wildly diverse amongst many different democracies. But when it comes to political culture, most democracies are underscored by shared values. Peace, human rights, civil liberties, political nonviolence, diplomacy, cooperation. Now, again, this all sounds very airy-fairy and the real world is a little less optimistic, but these are in principle the shared cultural norms of most democratic nations. And further to this, as a core principle of liberal democracy is, at least in theory, promoting and maintaining peace, war between democracies is therefore much less likely. When you have two nations that share peace as a cultural norm, it's obvious that that would greatly lessen the likelihood of them going to war with one another, as in a vacuum, neither of them want war from the outset. Democracies and their leaders, from a cultural standpoint, are much quicker to reach for the tools of diplomacy than they are to mobilise their armies. There's a theory in international relations referred to as the bargaining model of war, wherein two democratic nations in conflict can bargain over their dispute using a hypothetical war, something they both want to avoid, as a catalyst for settlement. In this case, war is the consequence of failed bargaining, and so both nations are strongly incentivized to come to the table and negotiate, taking into account the costs of war should these negotiations fail. Now, this theory goes a lot deeper than that, but the point here is that the peaceful culture of democracy and the mutual aversion to warfare that that, that democracies have results in diplomacy almost always taking the place of war between democracies as the method of conflict resolution. Now, there are plenty of other reasons that democracies focus on diplomacy rather than warfare, Uh, not just the cultural political norms of a democracy, but also the fact that the general public, as much as it doesn't like war, really doesn't like war with other democracies. Um, You might get away with waging a war of aggression on autocracy, as Bush, Blair and Howard demonstrated 20 years ago, but good luck fighting another democracy and then winning the next election. And this is linked to another concept in international relations known as the audience cost, the political cost that leaders must pay if they are seen to have backed down in a political crisis. Democratic leaders have to be very, very careful when escalating foreign policy issues towards war because backing down carries extremely heavy penalties from their constituents. Given all these reasons democracies avoid war with one another, and given how unpopular war is within democratic electorates, especially with other democracies, democratic leaders are very slow and very cautious when it comes to escalating a crisis because their political careers will pay a steep price if they are later forced to back down. You lose an enormous amount of face in seeking a war with an autocracy and then later backing down. But if you seek war with a democracy, something that's already unpopular, and then have to back down, your political career is over. And leaders of democratic nations are very aware of this. And so, as I say, are very slow to escalate any sort of political tension or crisis with another democratic nation. Anyway, while the political and cultural links shared by democracies around the world is one of the biggest reasons they don't fight wars against each other, there is another suite of factors altogether that we need to talk about, economic factors. Because democracies, integrated as they are generally into global markets with other democracies, they have wrought an international system of economic interdependence. 
If you go to war with another democracy, you not only lose out on the economic benefits from access to your, your enemy's market, you risk losing the economic benefits of full access to a global market if other democracies impose sanctions on you to punish your warmongering. And on top of this, war is very costly. It risks damage to your economy and to the economy of your opponent, and more broadly, the global economy. Just look at how the Russian invasion of Ukraine disrupted the European and global economies. No two peace-focused states are ever going to let that sort of thing happen lightly, particularly when peaceful diplomacy is at the forefront of political conflict resolution in democratic culture. And finally, if all of these reasons that I've talked to you about so far, if they've struck you, struck you as being a little too naive, a little too idealistic, a little out of touch with the cynical realities of the political world, this last economic reason might be a little more to your taste. Because in terms of sheer numbers, democracies, they win a lot more wars than they lose. And this stands to reason. Democracies in general are wealthier, they are more prosperous, they have greater access to more resources. And this necessarily makes them stronger, militarily speaking, because as we've established, war is expensive. So, Let's say that you're the leader of a democratic nation with a burning desire to go to war, and so you start casting your eye around for a target. Forget about a culture of peace and, and diplomatic dialogue and all that nonsense, right? You want to go to war, and you want to win, and that's the end of it. So, why would you pick a nation on a similar power level to your own? Why fight a democracy with its wealth and its resources when you could instead fight a tinpot autocrat? From a purely economic standpoint, going to war with another democracy is a very poor choice indeed, as it will be costly, it will be damaging, economically speaking, to go up against such a strong opponent. In other words, democratic leaders are not incentivized to pick on someone their own size, and so instead they go after generally weaker autocracies. And this brings us to the final point I want to make while speaking in support of the democratic peace theory. We began this segment by discussing the idea that democracies don't go to war with one another, uh, and how that more or less proves the theory to be correct, right? But this isn't necessarily so, right? Because if democracies don't go to war at all, ever, then the democratic peace theory isn't necessarily true. It's not that, dem it's not that democracies don't fight each other, it's that they don't fight anyone. So... For the democratic peace theory to be true, there needs to be evidence that democracies do go to war, just not with each other. And boy oh boy, is there evidence of that. The 20th century is filled with wars fought between democracies and autocracies. Uh, both world wars, obviously, the, the proxy conflicts be between uh, the US and the USSR during the Cold War, um, and then towards the turn of the century, the US-led wars of aggression and retribution in the Middle East. So, very clearly, democracies will willingly go to war with autocracies if circumstances call for it, especially as we saw with American foreign policy rhetoric throughout the Cold War, uh, through the Clinton and Bush administrations, and into the 21st century, with the US seeking to bring freedom to other parts of the world. In other words, to democratise them. Now, you can ask the people in Afghanistan and Iraq how those wars of democratisation went, or rather, you can't, because even after long, costly and bloody wars... Uh, that were in name seeking to bring freedom and democracy to these nations, they're still autocratic, and uh, they wouldn't take kindly to those sorts of questions asking just how democratic they are these days. But still, 
the willingness of the democratic world to go to war with autocracies actually, surprisingly, supports the democratic peace theory because it contrasts the, the fact that democracies don't go to war with each other with the fact that they do go to war with autocracies. And so as we wrap up the reasons in favour of the democratic peace theory, you have to admit that some of these arguments are pretty bloody persuasive. Or maybe you don't, because the arguments on the other side of the fence are just about as convincing. So let's get into them. First of all, the very, point, the very first point raised in support of the democratic peace theory, that democracies do not and have not gone to war, is just not true. There are uh, not plenty of examples, but examples of wars between democracies, not a huge number, but a non-zero number, which I would say goes a fair way in undermining the overall validity of the theory in the first place. History is littered with examples of wars between democracies, um, the Mexican-American War in the mid-1840s, the Ecuadorian-Peruvian War fought in the late 1850s, the Spanish-American War of 1898, the Philippine-American War, and the Second Boer War at the turn of the 20th century. And then there is the 20th century, the Irish War of Independence between 1919 and 1921, the Indo-Pakistani War of 1965, the Six-Day War of 1967, the Pakisha War, once again, Ecuador and Peru, back at it, 1981, the Yugoslav Wars of the 1990s, the list goes on. Democracies do fight each other. They might not be fighting wars that write the headlines of history, as they do, but the democratic peace theory falls at the first hurdle if it holds that no democracy ever goes to war with another. But even if we expand this theory to make it a little bit more flexible and say that democracies don't usually or often fight against one another, there's another issue. Because there simply isn't enough data to support the theory one way or the other. There haven't been enough wars altogether, or there hasn't been a long enough time period across which they have or haven't been fought to come to a definite conclusion. Bean-counting nerds love to argue about statistical significance, and so even if you wrestle your definitions into submission, submission and force them to support your argument that the democratic peace theory is either valid or invalid, there still isn't enough evidence one way or the other to provide statistically significant proof of the democratic peace theory or, conversely, of its invalidity. But this is a point in favour of it not being valid because the burden of proof is on the person attempting to prove a theory, not the person attempting to disprove it. When you claim something without evidence, it can be dismissed without evidence. So, the fact that there isn't enough data to support the democratic peace theory, even if that data can't be used to completely disprove it, it still is an argument in favour of the democratic peace theory being invalid by the fact that it is an unproven theory and the burden of proof is on those who are proposing it. Another argument against the, uh, the democratic peace theory, the most interesting argument in my view, even if it isn't the most convincing, um, is that uh, the democracy doesn't bring about peace, but instead that peace brings about democracy. This is a fascinating concept. It's neatly tied up in a theory known in contrast to the democratic peace theory, the territorial peace theory. And the territorial peace theory argues that a nation's stability and security brought, out, brought about by whatever means eventually leads to democratization. In other words, once a nation becomes peaceful, it naturally transitions towards democracy. Now, if this theory is true, it is by 
no means accepted or proven, of course, then the democratic world isn't peaceful because it's democratic. It is democratic because it's peaceful. Now, it's difficult to argue against the fact that there is a link between peace and democracy. That's broadly accepted. But the direction of this causal link very much remains a point of contention. Proponents of the territorial peace theory argue that stable borders and secure territory are a necessary precondition for democratization and that no democracy has ever been established without peaceful, secure borders. But these proponents are, a bit, are at a bit of a loss when it comes to explaining why then democracies are so happy to go to war against autocracies, because if peace leads to democracy and not the other way around, why do democracies still make war? So the territorial peace theory as, a, as, a, uh, as an oppositional standpoint to the democratic peace theory certainly has some holes in it, but all the same, it's a very interesting question to explore. Is it democracy that causes peace or is it peace that brings about democracy? Another factor to consider here is the nature of modern warfare and how warfare has changed. Now, despite Fallout telling us that war never changes, I mean, mate, it does. It very obviously does. Come on, Todd, don't bloody blow smoke up our houses here. We spent a lot of time talking through definitions today. Um, and just before I, uh, I, I touched upon how definitions can be used to challenge or support the validity of, of something like the democratic peace theory. So consider this. Even if democracies don't go to war with each other, even if they don't roll out the tanks and send off the aeroplanes, what about other forms of warfare? What about proxy wars? What about cold wars? What about covert operations and espionage? Only, only the other week we talked about the bombing of the Rainbow Warrior, Quarter Arts History Episode 38, Get Across It. This was an act of aggressive state terrorism between two democracies. Or we can go back to the mid-20th century, to the string of conflicts between the UK and Iceland. Again, two democracies. Uh, a a decades-long conflict over fishing rights, the Cod Wars, Episode 93, Get Across It. These incidents weren't war, not by most reasonable definitions, but they fly in the face of the spirit of the democratic peace theory, if not the letter, as democracies faced off in armed conflict that resulted in death. Democratic nations still pursued their national interest, in many cases in spite of competing national interests of other nations, democracy or otherwise. So even if they're not lining up their soldiers nice and neatly so they can get shot and die, democracies nonetheless engage in conflict with one another. And that is hardly peaceful. And now, finally, there is an absolutely massive miscellaneous and other category here. There is a tremendous number of factors that don't actually refute the, uh, the democratic peace theory directly. They don't stand in direct opposition to it, but instead seek to provide alternative reasons as to why democracies have just so happened, by and large, not to go to war with one another. So these factors, I'll talk about some of them, um, they don't necessarily disprove the theory. What they do is significantly undermine it by explaining how the circumstances that led to the theory's formation might have actually come about through other means. Essentially what they're stating is that, yes, maybe d democracies don't go to war with each other, but it's not because of anything put forth by the democratic peace theory, it's due to completely different things. It's not because of of talking about peace and cooperation and economic independence and all the rest of that. No, it's none of these things. It's due to different factors. Uh, and these factors just have general peace as a coincidental byproduct. For instance, plenty of people believe that it's not the 
democratic peace theory, but instead the capitalist peace theory, and that the global capitalist economy disincentivizes war very strongly between nations with open markets. This theory doesn't contradict the democratic peace theory, and honestly can even work alongside it somewhat, but if the real reason that these nations don't go to war is their developed market-oriented economies and not their shared democratic values, then the capitalist peace theory doesn't really support the democratic peace theory, and in all honesty, it relegates the democratic peace theory to being a coincidental artifact of the age of global capitalism. Here's another interesting and potentially controversial reason that has been put forth to explain democratic peace, one that you might disagree with, but one that's certainly worth including for the sake of argument here. Uh, Most democracies have universal suffrage. They have voting rights that have been extended after protracted political campaigning and agitation to women. And some theories argue that women are more pacifist than men, they are more averse to war, and uh, with more women having a greater political influence than ever before in history, perhaps it is the influence of women in modern politics that forestalls war and brings about peace. And so, if women are indeed less disposed towards aggression and violence than men, then their increased political influence in democratic political systems could be one of the reasons that democracies are inherently more peaceful. This idea is a relatively recent one. It was was discussed in great detail in the 2020 publication The Suffragist Peace and uh, argues, in essence, that, quote, the enfranchisement of women is essential for the democratic peace. Um, It is an academic work, uh, so get ready for some pretty... uh, crunchy writing. But if you want to get stuck into it, the idea is a very interesting one. If you feel uh, like reading the paper and understanding it more fully, I I, I suggest you do so because it is an interesting and, uh, again, alternative explanation to why democracies don't generally tend to go to war with each other. But look, maybe it's not women at all. Maybe instead it's nukes. Uh, Powerful democracies around the world usually either have nukes or they have friends with nukes. And as the risk of nuclear war is so catastrophic, it's very plausible that democracies don't want to pick fights with one another because they don't want to get nuked back to the Stone Age. Nuclear deterrence is a huge part of the landscape of modern international relations, so we shouldn't be too quick to discount it as a factor when it comes to peace between democracies. Conventional warfare always has the risk, when fought between nuclear-capable nations, of escalating into nuclear war. And that is something that slows down even further the already glacial pace that democracies take when it comes to escalating political crises between themselves towards a state of war. The fact that so many advanced democracies globally have nukes, or again, have allies with nukes, certainly, I think it's fair to say, uh, is factored in to the decision-making process of any democratic leader or democratic society when it comes to going to war with not just other democracies, but other nuclear-capable nations. Nuclear deterrence is a huge, huge disincentive to go to war. And as so many powerful democracies around the world are nuclear-capable, it's another huge obstacle to overcome in 
a war breaking out between two democracies. Now, there are so, so, so many other factors put forward to explain peace between democracies on top of the ones I've already mentioned. There's uh, factors like geographic proximity, alliance systems, um, increased geopolitical stability. We can't possibly get into all of them here, but the point is this. There are seemingly endless reasons that explain the ongoing relative peace between democracies that do not rely on the democratic peace theory. So, maybe... The democratic peace theory is not valid after all. The arguments put forth both in direct opposition to it and as alternative explanations are, for the most part, pretty well founded. So, where does this leave us? I first learned about the democratic peace theory back when studying at uni, and I found it absolutely fascinating back then, just as I do now. But 15 years later... I'm still not convinced by either side of the argument. I just don't know if this theory is true or not. Again, I know this is cowardice, but I'm I'm just not prepared to nail my colours to the mast on this one. I like thinking about this theory. I like examining the last century or two through the lens of the democratic peace theory. But I'm not convinced that it's true. Nor am I convinced that it's not, however. Perhaps there really just is a lack of data. I don't know. In any case... The democratic peace theory does offer a different perspective on the history of the world since the re-emergence of democracy just over 200 years ago, and it's clear to see why it's such a divisive and hotly debated issue in international relations. And I do hope that you found it as interesting to learn about as I did. Because more than anything, I hope that learning about this theory challenges you to think about the world in a different way both in terms of the history of the last century or two, and also in terms of today's modern political landscape. Well, that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the democratic peace theory. And I wonder how you feel about it after having these arguments laid out, after considering the historical realities addressed or not addressed by this theory. I wonder, I wonder how you feel about its validity. Um, and I also wonder, and worry, to be honest, uh, how you feel about your weekly 10-pot history podcast taking a partial detour into the world of international relations. Um, hopefully you got something out of this episode. I really, really would love to get your feedback. Um, maybe we can get across other concepts like this in the future every now and again if, uh, if a lot of people like it. Or maybe we can just never come back to anything like this ever again if this is not what you tune into half Ass History for. In any case, I really very much do want to know your thoughts. Head over to halfasshistory.net, Use the contact form there to get in touch and let me know what you thought of this episode. I really don't think, even if everyone loves it, it'll be much more than a sometimes food uh, for the podcast because uh, these episodes, they I've used the word crunchy a couple of times. That is really how they feel. There is so much to uh, to, to talk about and, and to comprehend when it comes to this sort of thing. But I, I really like it. I really love it. I, I don't know if I, um, I missed a trick by going into half-assed history instead of Half-assed international relations. Maybe, oh, maybe that could have been the breakout podcast of 2023. Maybe people would have loved that. In any case, no, look, um, it's something that I'd be happy to explore a little bit more if people are interested. Um, so I guess if you are or are not, let me know one way or the other so I can, uh, you know, I can I, I can figure things out um, for, uh, for future episodes. Anyway, 
I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. And um, I do hope you've enjoyed not just this episode, but also the most recent episode of Monuments. The first one came out uh, just a couple of days ago, and I, I've already seen that lots and lots of people have got across it. Want to hear your thoughts on that too. Um, next week uh, coming up uh, will be the Great Wall of China, I think, and we'll be getting across all sorts of monuments from all across the world. Again, uh, don't need topic suggestions. I've got every topic uh, already sorted out for the entire year when it comes to monuments. Uh, but love to hear topic suggestions for the other episodes quarter hour and half hour history um and uh, immensely i'm immensely appreciative of all the people who uh, who get in touch every week um, and i'm immensely appreciative of all the people supporting the show every week as well on patreon patreon.com slash half history bunch of new patreons coming my way uh to kick off the year which i'm enormously appreciative of as i say uh who have we got arvind menon just signed up kieran tierney uh hannah hutchins shamrock Joel Beneteau, Jackie Dufer, uh, Matt Holgate, Kristen Otero, Gregory Vaught, uh, Elijah Hirsch. Thank you so much to these new patrons and the old patrons as well. The the old guard have uh, been supporting me for, for years and years in some case, and uh, the show would not be what it is today without the support of people and patrons. So if you like this content, if you like these uh, these episodes and you want to see them continue, patreon.com slash history, you can support the show there. Anyway... That's enough of that. It is time, of course, to close out the show, as we always do with a question posed on Reddit. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent, and I'll see you back here next week for more nonsense on half Hour history. Until then, uh, we uh, we talked about the wars of democratization that were waged by the United States in the early 20, uh, 21st century, and uh, Slick Rick wants to know, even though the US pulled out of Iraq, is there still a chance that Iraq could be pregnant? <laughs> <laughs>